welcome. So we come now to the scripture. Let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father, uh, we pray as we read before we read because we, we need you uh, to help us uh, even as we simply listen to a passage of scripture being read. We confess uh, that we can be resistant to truth and, uh, and so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would overcome our resistance to, to the truth and that we would uh, uh, listen well and, and God, that you would um, enable us even as we hear these words read, that you would enable us to simply understand, but to believe them and to take great heart in the truth that is here. And so, God, we pray that you would be with us uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Second Corinthians and chapter five. Second Corinthians and chapter five, please. I want to read uh, through just the first part of verse eleven. I'll only take up a little bit of that, but I want to read the whole passage, the context there. So 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, please. Uh, Know that this is uh, the word of God. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, yet we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I want, if God will help me, to take up really just... um, Verses 9 and 10 of this. We've been through 1 through 8, but take up verses 9 and 10. So whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good um, or evil. Now, if you've been with us, you, you know where Paul is in all of this with his flow of his argument or his discussion uh, is that he's saying that he doesn't lose heart, that he, uh, he is always of good courage. We know that he lived a difficult life. And so the question is, uh, how does he live without losing heart? How can he live being always of good courage in the midst of the life that he lived? And we ask that question so that we can know it too uh, for us. And, and he goes through, as we've mentioned over these last number of weeks, a number of reasons for his not losing a heart, a number of reasons for the good courage that he is able to maintain, not the least of which is what we just considered last week from this passage. He knows that no matter what happens here, a day will come when he will be complete. A day will come when he will be perfectly human in the image of God, that his body will be incorruptible and that his soul will be perfect, that he will be perfectly then conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus' body and soul. And he'll live that way on the new earth. 
in the presence of God for all eternity. And so that keeps him <laughs> not losing heart. He says, no matter what happens here, I know that you can kill me, but, but I know that's to come. And he says, even if I die before Jesus returns and all of that resurrection happens, uh, that still I'll be in his presence, which he mentions in another place, is far better than even being here. And so, so, so he's encouraged by that. That enables him to keep from losing heart. That gives him uh, good, if you will, courage. Good courage to live. And so now he comes to a place, having said all of that, what enables him to maintain good courage. Having said all of that, he comes to a place now of saying, all right, essentially, how should we live? Well, what should be the aim? What should be the goal? What should be really the common expression now, the passion of our lives? Students especially are always talking to me about their passion and what their passion is. And this here, there's the answer to, to what our passion uh, really should be. He says our passion, our aim should be that whether we're here or away, that is, whether we're at home in the body and away from the Lord or whether we're away from the body and home in the Lord, wherever it is, wherever we find ourselves, that our aim, our goal, our passion should be to please the Lord. That's it, you see. He said we should, we should please him. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise that Paul would, would be saying that. Um, uh, to, to live to please the Lord. The Apostle John puts it like this, and we've said this many times. In First John in chapter 3 and verse 2, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That's all that Paul's been talking about, what he's like now in the body, and what is going to happen that hasn't yet happened. But we know... That when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And, and that's true. And so Paul's saying, when Jesus returns, then we'll be like him. We'll have an incorruptible body. We'll have a, 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 a soul that's perfectly conformed to, to Jesus' character and, and all of that. And so, so we'll, we'll, we'll be like him. And then verse 3, John goes on to say, And everyone who thus hopes in Jesus and hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if that's your desire, if your desire is to be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus, and you know that's coming, if that's, if that's your passion, that which is to come, then make it your passion now. And, and live, therefore, in every way and everything to please uh, him. And, and that's consistent, really, with who we've been made to be. You see, the, the wonder, the mystery, the amazing aspect of of being believers in Jesus is that it means that something dramatic, miraculous has happened to us. That we've been born again by the Spirit of God. You see, that we've been given, as the prophet Ezekiel said, a new heart. As a essence, the very guts of who we are is now new. Prior to that fact, we had been alienated from God. Our inclinations were against him and away from him. And, and because of that fact, all, now all of that is for him. All right? We've been changed. Uh, he'll go on to say, Paul will, that we're now new creatures, new creations in Christ Jesus. That's what happens. And so given that... The question would be, then, then how should we live? Well, given that, 
then what's consistent with this new life is that we would then live to please the Lord. That's our new inclination. That's the trajectory, if you will, of our new heart. That's where it's taking us. And so Paul isn't saying anything surprising here or anything illogical. He's just saying, listen, if this is what's happened to you, this is what you're looking forward to, and this is what's happened to you, then, then, then your passion, God-given passion, is to please him. This isn't unlike at all how we Presbyterians sometimes put it, that our chief end or our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify him is to please him. To glorify is to reflect him, to reflect who he is, you see. And, and that's pleasing to the Lord. Uh, and we're to, to, in, to enjoy him. Uh, I often define worship by coming together to, to praise God for who he is, to give thanks for what he's done, and to humbly submit to him in joyful obedience. And the joyful part is crucial. It isn't just obedience. It isn't just begrudging obedience. It's joyful obedience. Joyful because we know that what he calls us to isn't a burden, that his commands are not burdensome, but they're good for us. I mean, to, to, to live to please the Lord is a good thing. Who would you rather please? Who's, who's more to be pleased than God? To please yourself? Well, if you do that, that's a lesser thing. You know, Ecclesiastes. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, it's sometimes perplexing to us. But, but it's really this, uh, Solomon probably, but it is this, this, this brilliant, wealthy, powerful person who says, I'm going to explore life apart from God and see where it leaves me. And so he tries to please himself in every way, whether it's with pleasure, whether it's with education and, and wisdom and knowledge, or whether it's with wealth and accumulation and all of that. And so, so that's the sense of it. And the end result is he says, it's all vanity. This doesn't really satisfy. The only thing that really, really satisfies the heart of a human being is to be born again and to live to Please, the Lord, he's the only one who can really satisfy us. And so what Paul is saying isn't antithetical to the believer. It's consistent with who we really are. C.S. Lewis uh, put it like this when he was discussing uh, all all of this. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an uh, ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. You see, the only thing that really pleases is God and his ways. That's why John Piper years ago came up with a rather controversial expression. He refers to himself as a Christian hedonist. And he does that because he says, if I really want real pleasure in life, then I should pursue pleasing God. Because that's the only way to really be satisfied. 
Now, the difficulty, of course, is we don't really believe that. Uh, the difficulty is that, that there's this, there are times in which uh, we, we don't pursue pleasing God, but rather pursuing our own interests, pursuing uh, ourselves, really. And rather than being obedient, and the way the scripture puts it is that we're to be obedient through faith, by faith. It's the obedience of faith. You see, we obe- obey not by our own willpower, but we obey as we live by faith. And when we obey by faith, what that means is that we're obeying God because we're trusting in his wisdom, not our own. That's faith. We're saying, no, 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 this seems to to be what I think should please me. But God says it won't please me, but this will please me. And so to be obedient by faith means that I'll follow his wisdom and not my own. That's this being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's coming to understand life from God's perspective, what really is satisfying, right? And so when we obey by faith, we follow, we believe, we trust his wisdom. Not only that, we trust his strength. That calling us, commanding us to obey him, he will give us the strength. He will enable us to follow him. So we rely upon him. We rely upon his spirit at work within us to enable us to obey. That's the obedience by, of, through faith. And so, so when he calls us to obey him, it is by faith. But, but, but you see, unbelief, sadly, uh, comes to us. And when we don't believe God, then we fall into sin. It's all sin, in some sense, is a lack of faith. It's a lack of believing God, taking him at his word. So, so there are times when we lie. And when we lie, what we're really saying is, I don't believe that following God's ways, telling the truth, will satisfy me at this moment. I, I don't believe that really can satisfy me. And so the only thing that can really satisfy me, make me happy at the moment, is to tell a lie. Well, that's just simply unbelief. Right? It's simply unbelief. And it won't, as we know from experience, it won't ultimately, won't ultimately satisfy and and, and we slander others at times. And when we do that, what we're saying, in essence, is I don't really believe that God is right about this. Uh, I think I'll be more satisfied <clears throat> if I can say these horrible things about these people, even my enemies. And, and, and I don't believe that it will really satisfy me to love my enemies, to pray for them, to bless them, as God says I should. I don't think that would make me happy. I think what would make me happy is to say these horrible things about them. And that, that'll, that'll make But you see... That it won't. It won't ultimately satisfy. We, we, we think that um, a keeping for ourselves will satisfy us and not be generous. But, but God's way is to be generous and to give, even give sacrificially for the sake of others. And, and, and we think keeping and accumulating and spending on ourselves will, will actually make us happy. But, but, but he says, no, 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 giving. And we say, well, I don't think that would really, really satisfy. We, we think engaging in lust and... Sex outside of marriage or same-sex relationships. We think that might satisfy. And he says, no, 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 it won't satisfy. There's, the only thing that will satisfy really is to follow my ways with my strength. And that is <clears throat> to be sexually intimate only in the context of, of real marriage. And, 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 and there are times we think, no, that really won't work. Yeah, that this would satisfy me. And so all of that... We fail to forgive people because we, we think holding a grudge or we think holding it against them would satisfy more than, than releasing them from the hurt which they've caused. And you get the point. 
Uh, he says, I want you to live to please me. And so we live to please him by obeying him, by faith, trusting his wisdom, trusting his strength, uh, relying upon his spirit to enable us to live in such a way that does indeed glorify him, please him. Even we could say, uh, make him happy. So the question then is, do we really live to please him? Do we, do we really do that? I mean, do, do, we, do we take the thoughts that we have and ask ourselves, do these thoughts really please him? Do, do we take the words that we say and ask the question, do the words that I say really please him? Really reflect him? Is God pleased with this or is he grieved with this? We, we take the things that we do and we ask the question, do the things that we do really please him? Do they really reflect his glory? Do they reflect who he is? And, and does that even, is that even a, a thought for us? I mean, is, is, is that our, our real passion? Uh, we, we should begin the day, I think, with th- this thought. <laughs> Pleasing God is my passion. By faith, I'm going to obey him. That's my, that's my aim. That's my ambition. That's my... My goal, the, the thoughts that we have is, is our theology pleasing to him or is it just pleasing to us? Do I, do I rearrange my theological categories in such a way that makes me happy or, or am I taking God's thoughts and thinking them after him so that he would be happy? Is my theology pleasing to him? Is my worldview pleasing to him? The way that I understand the world, is that really pleasing uh, to God or is it just pleasing to me? I just think like this because it makes me happy because it, it exalts me in some way. But, but does it really make God happy? The way that I, I really see uh, the world, the way that I really think about about the world, my my thoughts about other people. Are they pleasing to the Lord? The way that I think about my spouse, the way that I think about my children. The way that I think about my parents. Are those thoughts pleasing to the Lord? The the way that I I think about my friends. The way they think about my enemies. Are those thoughts pleasing to the way that I think about the poor? The way that I think about the rich. Are those thoughts pleasing uh, to the Lord? Uh, The way I think about people who are like me. Are those thoughts pleasing to the Lord? The people, who, my thoughts about people who are not like me. Uh, my thoughts about the people who like me. <laughs> thoughts about people who don't like me. Are those thoughts that I have pleasing, uh, pleasing to the Lord? Well, what about my thoughts about myself? Do I think of myself as unworthy of the love of God? Do I, do I think of myself as a victim? Do I think of myself as responsible for my sin? Do I think of myself as one who's guilty before God apart from Christ? Do I think of myself as one who is forgiven? Do I think of myself as one who's adopted into the family of God? Do I think of myself as one who has the Holy Spirit within me and thus he's enabling me to follow after Christ. So I think about, do I think about myself who, uh, as one who needs to persevere and one whom God will help and enable to persevere? Do I think of myself as one who will be glorified someday, the glory of God bestowed upon me in the ways that Paul taught? Is that so my self-understanding? Is that how I think about myself? Uh, the words that I say, are they pleasing to the Lord? Do they bless him? Or as James would say, out of this same mouth do they curse him.
do I say that which is edifying for the need of the moment in the lives of other people? Or do I disregard them and say things which are inappropriate or hurtful to them in their life? Do I bring peace with the words that I say? Or division with the words that I say? How about the words that I say? Are they pleasing? The things I do, are they pleasing? Are they glorifying to God? Do they reflect Jesus? Jesus says that people should see your good works and glorify my Father who's in heaven. Do do my works, do the things that I do, my deeds, do they really, do I examine them? And I say, did that what I just did? Is that pleasing to the Lord? That that which I'm planning to do, is is that pleasing to the Lord? Is it pure? Is it holy? Is it loving? Is it just? Is it compassionate? Is it gentle? Is it patient? Is it kind? Right? What am I doing? And these things I'm doing, are they pleasing to the Lord? That's, that's what we must be asking ourselves all the time. The good news is that as believers in Jesus, we have his wisdom through the scripture. And we have his spirit within us. And so he's saying to us, please me. Before you were made new, you couldn't please me. But now that you've been made new, please me. Glorify me. That's what's being worked in you. And part of this glorifying him, part of this pleasing him, of course, is to be dependent upon him. Dependent upon his wisdom, depending upon his power, depending upon his forgiveness, depending upon his strength, all of that. The way that we please him is to go to him, to seek him, to receive from him that we might live. And so he says, I want you to live pleasing to me. Now notice though in verse 10 that um, uh, Paul gives to us really a motivation. Verse 9 says, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him for, that is because, this is why we, 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 we aim to please him. Because, notice what he says. I wasn't expecting this. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He's saying, he says, I want to give you this motivation to live to please the Lord because there's a judgment that's coming. Now, we know that, but you know, we don't like to talk about that. But Paul says, no, 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 this is your motivation. And we say, I don't think I should be motivated by something so negative. And Paul would say, I don't care. This is the motivation that you should have. It's not the only motivation you should have, but it's, it's a key motivation that you should have. You see, as, as believers in Jesus, we need to learn to be motivated by what God wants to motivate us with. I don't even know if that's a good sentence. But, but you get the point. You get the, we, we can't just pick and choose and say, nah, I don't really want to take that. He says, no, 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 no. Be motivated by this. So be motivated by the fact that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I suspect that as you listen to that, other, I mean, thoughts are going through your head. I would say they should be going through your head. Like, well, what about this whole deal about being saved by grace through faith? This seems to be judged on what I do. And so if it's judged by what I do, I thought... That that was already taken care of by Jesus. I mean, didn't we read this morning in our assurance 
uh, of our, our uh, confession this morning uh, from Romans 8. Wonderful passage. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Right? That should make you just... Uh, and and you, that should make you feel really good. Uh, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, that is, make me obey, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he took my sin, guilt for my sin. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. We've sinned, we should die. But Jesus took it, so the requirement of the law was taken by him. Uh, who do not live according to the flesh, that's us, but according to the spirit. And you go, wow, that's really, really good. And, and of course, we know um, the, the passage, we live on this passage in Ephesians. Um, in chapter uh, 2 uh, and, uh, and, and uh, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. And you say, well, wait a minute. Paul's now saying in 2 Corinthians, that the judgment's going to be on the basis of our works. But, but this says uh, over here uh, that uh, I'm saved through, by grace through faith, not of my own doing, that is my own works, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So, so what's, is Paul of two minds here? Uh, what's he really saying? He says, on the one hand, I'm saved not by my works. Now he's saying I'm going to be judged by my works and that should motivate us to live to please the Lord. Does that mean I'm saved initially? By grace, but then I have to, you know, work the rest of the time and prove it? Or what's the deal? And uh, so that's really the question. I could read uh, many, many other passages um, as well. Well, let's give Paul a break for a moment and, and, and trust that he's not of two minds. That when he wrote this statement, he knew those other things too. And so in his mind, they all go together. And so we'll ask that question. How can these all be reconciled? Um, so let me make, before I get to that... Let me make some uh, obvious observations from verse 10. First, this, that uh, this includes everyone, this judgment. He says, we must all. And the we there refers to believers. And so I would suggest that we're not the only ones before the judgment seat of Christ. But uh, everyone is. But Paul wants to make the point that believers will come before this judgment seat of Christ, we all, and, and and we must. That is, there's no getting out of it. Uh, it's been ordained. This will happen. Uh, we must, right? So, so we have all of that. And then he says that we must appear. Now, that that means more than just show up. Really, it also means that we will be revealed at the judgment seat. When we, when we appear, it will appear. <laughs> so we're appearing before the omniscient one. And so, uh, as Jesus said, everything that's hidden will be revealed and all the careless thoughts will be revealed and all those uh, careless words will be revealed, rather. And so, uh, he's, we're going to make this uh, appearance. Uh, one uh, uh, dictionary, you can put it like this, it says appearance here, uh, means not simply to make an appearance, but to be revealed, to be laid bare, to be stripped of every outward facade. It's an open revelation of one's uh, character. So a minute ago when we read Romans 8, we weren't sweating, and now we are, right? Because we have this, uh, this, all of this happening. So we're going to appear, 
And it's the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, in other places, the, uh, this judgment seat is called the judgment seat of God. In another place, First Peter chapter 1, we're told of a father who judges justly. Uh, but uh, we know that Jesus has been given uh, the place uh, of the one who will execute that, uh, that, that judgment. Uh, the Gospel of John, we read Jesus saying that uh, the Father has given all judgment uh, to him. So it's, it's accurate, it's right, of course, for Paul to say this is, in fact, the judgment seat uh, of Christ. Uh, and these are for uh, deeds done in the body. So we realize it's going to be after we die. And uh, it seems from the scripture, other passages of scripture, that it will occur uh, at the time of the resurrection, the time of the second coming of Jesus. We have a great passage in the in the book of Hebrews. I, I always affectionately call it the Billy Graham passage, one of the Billy Graham passages. We said we must all die uh, and, and then face the judgment, right? And so um, Hebrews 9.27. And, and so it's after then. It's for deeds done in the body. And then... Uh, it is for deeds done in the body, whether good or for e- or evil. So it's a judgment according to what we have done. Whether what we have done is good or what we have done is evil. shouldn't surprise us that it, Paul would put it that way. Jesus uh, puts it that way. Uh, we can bookend Jesus putting it that way um, in, uh, in Matthew and chapter 16 and verse 27. Um, Matthew records Jesus with these words. Let me begin in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come, this is what I'm after here, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So that's in Jesus, uh, quoted by Matthew, and his life. And then in Revelation 22, bookend Jesus, this is, Jesus' return. This is how he describes his return. Revelation 22, verse 12. Jesus says, um, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning uh, and the end. So, so what's all this about? We live to please the Lord. He says, now here's what's to motivate you, to motivate you because judgment is coming. You believers, we believers are going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How should that motivate us to live in such a way to please the Lord? What's this judgment of our works all about? Well, first this. Clearly, say that with a smile on my face, clearly, uh, what we realize, what we will realize at that moment at the judgment seat of Christ, that we are indeed saved only by grace through faith. Because when our lives are revealed, and and I have no idea, and I don't believe anybody who tells me they do have an idea, I don't have any idea what this is going to look like. I mean, billions, trillions, gazillions, I don't know how many people are going to be there. I don't know how long that's going to take. I don't know. If it's 
I don't know. I mean, I can't even imagine. I couldn't make a movie of this and make it even get close to what it might be like. I don't know what it's going to look like, but but here we are, and uh, and and being laid bare individually, not collectively, but individually before the Lord. And so it's going to be clear to us at that point in time, and probably clear to everyone else that. Anyone who's saved is only saved by grace through faith. None of us on that moment should be surprised by that. Because we know that's true. We don't always come to grips with it, but at that moment we will come to grips with it. And when the Lord says to us that we're saved, he'll he'll do that to believers by exposing, I suspect, our sins. But there will be sins forgiven. That, that, that's, that's the amazing thing. Sins forgiven. For unbelievers, there will be sins unforgiven. For believers, their sins forgiven because Jesus has atoned for them. He's paid for them. And they'll be revealed as forgiven sins. But for unbelievers, they won't be forgiven. And so believers will come into the very presence of God with everlasting life. Uh, unbelievers into cast into hell and so he says this is really true now to prepare us for that moment every Sunday we pray a prayer of confession now what that prayer one of the things that prayer of confession does is it prepares us for this moment because when we pray publicly that prayer of confession praying it to God but we're praying it in front of each other in fact this week intentionally on this particular prayer of confession, it began like this. Holy and merciful God, in your presence and the presence of our brothers and sisters. So we should be listening when we're all praying this prayer of confession. And, and, and so we're listening in such a way is that I'm coming and when I pray that, you're hearing me pray that. And what you should be thinking is, Bill knows he's a sinner. Right? Shouldn't surprise you if it does talk to my family. No, they'll convince you. <laughs> but Bill knows he's a sinner. And he knows that he's saved by grace through faith. When I hear you pray that, I know that you believe that you're a sinner saved by grace through faith only. And on that day, judgment, it'll be more intense, I suspect. But no different, no surprise. When my sins are exposed as forgiven sins, you'll go, I knew it. I knew it. About him. When your sins are exposed. As forgiven sins. I'll say. Ah, I knew that. Every, every Sunday. I heard him say. They needed the forgiveness of God. So ah, that's no surprise. To me. Mine shouldn't be surprised to you. I'm just like you. And so. Uh, uh, but that's. This sense. So, so that moment. God will be glorified. He'll be glorified in his justice. He'll be glorified in his grace. Right, so, so that's the one thing. And so we'll come to that in a moment. And Paul's going to give that to us as a motivation in chapter 5. And we'll get there soon enough. But later in chapter 5. But, but, but think about that at this particular judgment. The second thing we realize is we know that um, uh, believers will be rewarded by God for that which we've done. The Bible speaks of rewards. For instance, Jesus speaks... Of rewards, I could read passage after passage. I won't read too many, but you know this one in Matthew, in chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus uh, says, verse uh, 
Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of my name. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Uh, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't know what that reward is going to be for the persecuted ones. But, but he says, be motivated by this, that, that great is great is your reward. Paul speaks of a reward for the righteous. He calls it the crown of life. I, I don't know what that is exactly. Sounds great. Uh, but but the, this reward, the crown, the crown of of life. We we read, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth before, in one Corinthians in chapter uh, chapter three, um, uh, verse eight, he says, um, sorry about doing ministry. He says, "He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building." According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus. And now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of, of work each one has has done, if the work that anyone has Built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, you don't lose your salvation in the midst of this, but, but there, are, there are rewards. And, and, and Paul says, so, so live to please the Lord. And, 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 and there's rewards for that. Now, I, I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know what those rewards are. There's various theories about that. But one of the things that just makes me smile as I think of those rewards is that I know the rewards that come by way of grace. Not even by way of my works. I mean, let's say there's a reward for the the one who's persecuted for the sake of Jesus because he holds fast. But the one who's persecuted for the name of Jesus knows that he holds fast only because there's someone holding fast to him. And God says, I've held you in the midst of this. Don't let me reward you for that. That's just grace, right? Sort of reminds me of the fact that when your dad is teaching you as a little boy how to, how to hit a baseball. So, so you stand there with a bat in your hands and somebody's going to throw the ball so your dad kind of gets behind you and he puts his arms around you and you grab the bat and he grabs the bat over your hands. And the ball comes and you hit it. And he says, now run and you get the first base and he cheers you. Now it's only because of our egos, it's only when we teach our sons how to hit a baseball do we realize my dad hit that. <laughs> and he cheered me and I was rewarded oh yes that's that's grace and so when we love well yes there will be a reward but that reward will come because the one who loves well lives within us and animates us and motivates us and helps us we persevere to the end There'll be a reward. And we persevere to the end because there's one who preserves us to the end. And so it's his grace at work within us. And so this judgment there, but, but, but note this too. That there really is a judgment as to our works which will enable God to know who is saved and who isn't. Because, you see, our works don't save us. But they reveal that we are saved. 
in the great line that we're saved by grace through faith, yes. We're saved by faith alone, yes. But the reformers kind of paraphrase that to say that we're saved uh, through faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. That is the fact that it always yields fruit. It always yields obedience. Jesus said, they'll know you because, because you love. Right? The world will know. You, they'll know that you're my disciples because you love each other, because it will manifest. Your, your faith will manifest itself in love. That was, that was the point that, that James makes in his letter, isn't it? He, he speaks of faith, and he says that great line, faith without works is dead. That is, it's, it's not real saving faith. Uh, James 2, uh, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe that, and, and they shudder. And do you want to be shown, your fo- you foolish person, what faith apart from works, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You remember that story. You remember that God calls Abraham to take his son, his only son, and to sacrifice him. And, and you, you, you know the story. You know that he went through with all that until he raised the knife to kill his son and God stayed his hand and provided a sacrifice. But the point is that, well, I'll let James say it. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, uh, Abraham believes God and he's declared by God to be righteous in his sight, to be justified, saved, if you will. That's how we would express it. But then he says by chapter 22, which is sometime later, that his faith that appeared in chapter 15 is now evidence by what he did. And so you could say he was saved in chapter 15 and you could say he was saved in chapter 22. You could say he was saved by grace through faith and you could say he was saved by his works. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when you received when she received the messengers, sent them out by another? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And, and so, so God can look at us, and, and Paul is saying to us now, realize that when this judgment seat of Christ comes, uh, your faith will be revealed by the life that you lived. Did you live by faith? To live by faith, oh yes, I depend upon God for my salvation, my wholeness, my completeness. I I live by faith for my justification that he would declare me righteous on the basis of what Christ has done. And I live by faith by trusting his wisdom and not my own and his spirit within me to live. And so that should be manifested, he says, most assuredly in love for one another. In fact, um, I'll close with this, Matthew chapter 25. A confusing passage if you're not thinking about it uh, in this way. Matthew 25, you might remember this passage if I simply remember, if I simply say the sheep and the goats. And you remember how this goes. I'll just read a bit of it. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is the judgment seat of Christ. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, or the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for... And here's the basis of the judgment. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say it to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Now, when you read that, you think, well, I must, my salvation must be based upon my works. And the answer is no, it's not. Really, it's based on your faith, which evidence itself in works. Because you say, Jesus said that you're known by your love for one another, your love for other believers. And when he says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, my brothers, you did it to me. Who are the brothers of Jesus? The brothers of Jesus do not include every poor person or every person in prison or every hungry person. We take care of them. There's other passages for that. But this passage says, when you took care of me, when you took care of my brothers, you're taking care of me. My brothers, the brothers of Jesus, are those, as he said, who do the will of his father. Those who are his brothers who are related to him by family, who are related to him because they're believers in him, adopted into his family. And so you see this judgment is the same as every other because believers will love each other. And so he says, you're judged by that. And so Paul's saying, live to please the Lord. What pleases him? That you love one another. That's what Jesus said. By this, all people know that you're my disciples. If you love each other. He says, that's the, that's the real test. Do you believe? But you hate your brother, the Apostle John says, and you're a liar. And so, Paul says, live to please the Lord. What pleases him is to love each other. And a day will come when, when, when it'll be shown and everyone will see that the people of God have really loved. And he'll say, come on, you all, you love as I have loved you, who love the people of God, you who love my brothers, come. You're the ones who believe. You're the ones for whom I've died. You're the one who's saved. So that's the point of it. There are Paul isn't of two minds. There aren't various judgments based on various things. It isn't that Christ only died for part of our sins and we've got to work out the rest. It's no, no, no. He died for us. And when we are saved, uh, everything changes. And that change is evidenced by our faith, yes. And our faith is evidenced by how we live. Because we live to please him. Hmm. Does that make sense? Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that it would make sense. And that we would live by faith loving each other in such a way that on that day it'll be seen and you'll be glorified by having a people conformed to the image of your son. So help us, I pray.
They pray for us, God, as we, as we live this life. Many of us struggle in ways because they're real struggles, because the real, real difficulties happening in life. And so, so I pray that you would enable us to stand, enable us to persevere, uh, enable us to live to please you. I, I pray for those who grieve, our dear Laurel Lewis, as she grieves the loss of her mom. I, I pray for her and for others who have losses like that, that you will enable her, enable us to continue to persevere by faith, Pleasing you, loving and being compassionate and caring in the midst of the difficulties of of life. And for those who suffer emotionally, those who suffer physically, those who suffer financially, uh, those who suffer loneliness and and, and difficulties in relationships. Father, I I pray that you would enable us to to live in such a way that would please you, that would evidence the fact that we're believers in Jesus. We really do have faith. We trust you. So help us, I pray, in the midst of that. And Father, enable us to be a people that so loves even now and that that would be evidenced, that our faith would be evidenced by how it is that we love one another, that that as in the early church, people would see how we love each other and and, and desire then to know that, to know that kind of love, to be loved that way, to have a community like that. And so I pray, God, that you would work in such a way in our lives. um, People would see uh, our good works that are by faith, and glorify you. This I pray. In Jesus name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.